Hi, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. Today is another Double Sarah Day. It's funny, on on Facebook, I think one of these, it was many years ago, but there was some little quiz that analyzed your friend group. Like, what name are you friended with the most? And by far, mine was Sarah's. I had like 30-something friends who were named Sarah, and most of them were with an H, and then all the other names were smattered about. So we have another Sarah and Sarah combo today. My good friend, Sarah Suzuki, she is a licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor, and her practice is called Chicago Compass Counseling. They are a group practice dedicated to helping people break the cycle of self-destructive behavior. And lovely Sarah lives in Ukrainian village with her husband, Jack, and her amazing dog, Sadie. She's fantastic. So Sarah and I, we met through a mutual friend, and she talks a little bit about this in our interview. We connected in this space when she was going through a hard time at the moment, and I was kind of feeling really abundant, actually, in that moment. And I don't know, we just started chatting more and more. And then I was trying to start this group of other practice owners and Sarah has been a part of that and a big part of that. And our relationship has just been so helpful to me. Some of the things I'll share in our interview that I've learned from her and it sounds like, you know, she feels in a mutual way. So I hope you really enjoy this conversation with Sarah as we get into some nitty gritty things about addiction, you know, what healer is or isn't and dissociation and trauma. So please enjoy Sarah Suzuki. Hello, Sarah Suzuki. Hi, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I can already tell this is going to be super fun. Thank you for being on Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm super excited to be here. Are you? Are you super excited? Okay. All right. (laughs) You were hesitant to schedule, so I'm calling you out on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it just seems intense and I know you like to get vulnerable and I'm always like wanting to not get vulnerable, but <laughs> I'm taking the dive. So here I am. Oh, it's so funny. Cause like to hear you say that, and I guess, you know, in a public forum, you don't get vulnerable, but girl, we Marco Polo something fierce <laughs> and we get vulnerable on there. We do get super vulnerable. For people out there who have not used Marco Polo, I highly suggest it. It has been the best thing that's happened to my relationships with my girlfriends. It is like magic for creating this. I I almost think of it as like a video confessional on a reality TV show. That's what it ends up feeling like to me. And I will just say the deepest, darkest, hardest things to that video and then like have it received by my friends with such love is so incredible. It really is. I I never cry on the phone and I never cry while I'm texting, but I cry on Marco Polo like all the time. Yeah, it's amazing. So thank you for introducing me to it. Oh, for sure. Love it. Maybe Marco Polo should sponsor this podcast. (gasps) (laughs) I'm going to reach out to them. Anyway, so before we digress into all the amazing things that we're going to digress into, why don't you tell everybody who you are and what you do? So my name is Sarah Suzuki, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker and substance abuse counselor. And I own a group practice in Chicago's Loop called Chicago Compass Counseling. And we work with a lot of behavioral addictions from the perspective of just starting where people are and 
and trying to get them where they want to go. So that's the one sentence synopsis. Fabulous. And how did you become a social worker? I don't know if I know this story. What's the origin of Sarah as a social worker? So the origin is I never wanted to know anything about psychology. I actually thought it was bullshit. And I didn't even know what a social worker was. Like I Mm -hmm. am one of those people who thought a social worker just took children away from families. Samesies. And I had this idea first that I was going to be a lawyer. And and then that was just a little bit too, you know, I wanted to be cool. So I was going to be a writer. I saw myself, you know, like wearing all black and going to the Iowa Writers Workshop and selling my blood for rent money, like blood transfusions. <laughs> and like, Uh, Oh my God. You know, like just wear all black and like, you know, early death. And that was like my vision for the future. And I was really jaded by the idea of psychology in part because I had a, a, a lot of mental instability in my home growing up. My dad struggled with mental illness and substance abuse, and he saw psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, And I I never saw change for the better. I just saw things getting worse and worse. Mm -hmm. And so I really believed that it was all bullshit. And the other side of it too was my parents got divorced um, when I was five. And I grew up in a town where divorce was totally unusual. And I was identified as being in this high risk group of students who were just going to have a terrible outcome. So somebody who actually became my best friend uh, and myself, we were put into this group called Rainbows when we were in first grade and we were taken out of the classroom. And it was just these really terrible 90s interventions around like our self-esteem where they'd say like, what's on your feeling chart? And they would get really excited when we'd say we were happy. They'd be like, that's so wonderful, Sarah. That's so good. You're so good. You're happy. You're so So resilient. Right. And so I just kept pointing to the happy face and they kept getting more and more excited. So I learned one lesson there, which is like, just pretend you're happy. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other was that they would say, you know, no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what anyone thinks, you did not cause the divorce, Sarah. This is not because of you. And of course, then as a kid, I'm like, well, wait, what? I didn't think it was because of me. Why why are they saying that? (laughs) Because I can't imagine you were a normal child who would actually internalize that. That's so funny. I mean, it it just seemed so stupid to me. And so (laughs) when people in high school were taking psychology classes and they're like, oh, I'm so OCD and blah, 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 and like diagnosing each other, I was like, you know what? That's bullshit. Mm. I went through most of college, again, avoiding psychology. I was going to be a writer. And then I ended up in this really interesting experience where I was doing writing for a nonprofit in South Dakota on a Native American reservation, which was really cool. I can't really remember that much about what I was doing when I was like doing my nonprofit work, but to pay for my room and board or to have room and board, I was living in a domestic violence shelter where two or three nights a week, I would be on call and anyone who was coming in for services or anything that was happening in the house, I was supposed to just help out. Wow. And one night uh, I was talking to one of the mothers there at three in the morning, we're drinking coffee and she had been struggling with meth addiction. A lot of, a lot of the people there had at that time. And she said to me, you know, like, I want to stop. I just don't know how. Mm. And 
up until that point, because I didn't believe in psychology, what I did believe in were systems of oppression. And I believed Mm -hmm. that people made choices because of systems, that they almost had no free will. And when she said that to me and just was looking at me searchingly, Mm. I realized that my complete lack of response or even total surprise that she would say this, it it just was very, very humbling. And as you know, Sarah, I have sort of an obsession with problem solving. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would know that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And so she says this to me and I have no response and it just drove me nuts. And I was like, well, how is she, how are we supposed to solve this problem? Mm. And so I came away from that and I was telling my mom about it. And she was like, oh, well, maybe you'd be interested in social work. So I started to look into social work and I was like, okay, well, there's this, you know, school social worker stuff and clinical Mm -hmm. people doing whatever, but I'm going to create my own system where I help women like that and Mm -hmm. and people uh, who are struggling. And then there'll be all these other practitioners who who help them change. And I'm going to create this amazing structure. So I was going to do administration exclusively. And I went to graduate school on an administrative track. And then I was like, well, maybe I should learn some more about clinical since I'm going to be creating this program. And uh, I got dragged further and further into micro skills and clinical work because I loved it. Mm -hmm. I could not help, but love it. And as we say again and again, we don't find the work, the the work really finds us. Yep. So that's the long uh, story of how I ended up in social work completely in spite of myself. Well, and, you know, to go back to the problem solving piece of it, I feel like, especially in addiction, there is a lot of problem solving in it. And it's not necessarily like, okay, well, you know, we have to figure out what intervention to apply to you necessarily. But a lot of it is figuring out the components that make up this person that led to destructive substance use. And how do we fill in, how do we fill in missing puzzle pieces when we take away the drugs and alcohol? And with people who struggle with, chronic use, I don't want to say relapse because I'm I'm trying to stop using the word relapse because I think it's so stigmatizing. So people who like struggle with chronic use and struggle to stay sober, I feel like when people struggle with that, there's just something that either something that we've missed or something that was recommended that they just weren't willing to do yet. And we just have to keep problem solving for that missing X almost, you know? Absolutely. It's extremely fulfilling because it's not as though there's always just one thing. Mm -hmm. But as we know um, from approaches that work, it's like if somebody is failing to change, if the behavior has not changed, I always tell my clients, it's not that you failed, it's that the plan failed. There's something that's missing in the plan. And so it's just this really amazing thing to kind of keep troubleshooting the plan again and again until all of a sudden success occurs. So yeah, I mean, I love it. I really, I never could have pictured that this would be my life today at all, but I love it. It's funny. I couldn't either, but I feel like we walk this parallel line, but also perpendicular at the same time. I think that's what's so cool about our friendship. There are things (laughs) that you and I are exactly opposite on, and there are things that we're exactly aligned on. And it's just so interesting. Yeah, we've got a great complementarity. We do. So Sarah is obsessed with personality tests and the Enneagram. Is that your favorite? 
I was going to say that's really the the main one. Okay. I don't like the okay. whatever that other one. The MMPI. MMPI. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all about the Enneagram. <laughs> It's so funny because we were we actually went out to dinner and, and a show on Thursday night and we were talking about about something and she's like, ooh, that person's a total seven. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> I just love how your brain works that way. And but I think that's the that's the analytic problem solving piece that you bring into your work that is also very artful. And I don't know, I don't know if you would necessarily say that, but I think that that marriage of art, creativity, and the way you apply this stuff is what, in my mind, takes you down that road of being a healer. Right. Yes. It's it's always an art and a science. And so, right. So our Enneagram pairing of a one and a three mm-hmm. uh, being a really goal-oriented relationship and really, you know, focused and supportive in that. And then also that complementarity of I have a tendency to be more rigid as a one. <laughs> and there may be some times where you're maybe a little bit more like, you know, jumping ahead. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like uh, yeah. ready, you know, fire, aim. Whereas yep. I'm definitely like aim, 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 fire. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I'm ready now. Right. But it works. So, yeah. Yeah. Mutual friend love. It's great. <laughs> well, so I kind of touched on the the healer word. So when you think about that word applied to yourself, how does that sit with you? So didn't you read my copious notes that I wrote in response? <laughs> I skimmed them because I was like, I'm not fucking reading this, Sarah, because we're saying it and uh, live. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just, just to, to tell outline. everybody. So I send everybody questions before and I'm just I'm outing you because it's adorable. So I send everybody the questions before. And this is the first time that someone has responded to my questions over email. And I'm like, Sarah, I'm not I'm not answering your questions. I am not reading this. You are just going to do it and it's going to be amazing. <laughs> I, I'm just outlining things in advance. I know. You know? I just love you. <laughs> so one of the things, as I said in my notes, is um, how do you feel about the word healer? I had to sort of take a step back and say, whoa, because I, I feel like what I strive for and what I aim to do is to engage in work that's healing, but to identify myself as a healer feels so sacred that I don't know if I feel like I can say I've arrived. And yet it's something that really certainly focuses my vision is what does it mean to engage in healing and to make that really an Mm -hmm. intentional part of my day-to-day life. So I guess what I'd say is I don't know if that's something where I'll ever arrive and be like, yes, I'm a healer. And it still infuses the way that I focus my perspective on my daily actions. Right. Well, and the when you say arrive, that just kind of makes me think, and, and, and all of the interviews that I've done so far, too, and people's hesitancy to call themselves a healer, I, I wonder if it's just black or white, too black or white to say, are you a healer or are you not? Because mm-hmm. I don't think that one arrives at being a healer. I feel like there's a calling and the degree to which we answer the call is a day-to-day process, you know? Absolutely. Like I was just listening to my therapist's interview and, you know, she was talking about sometimes she's having a crabby day and 
And she's like beating herself up because she wishes she could like be more available to the client. But then she recognizes later that if she were fully attentive, she would have gotten in the way of the process, you know? Mm -hmm. So she's still healing, even though she doesn't feel like she's arriving in that space as a healer all the time. And I don't know why I want more people. Like I, I find myself, the more often that people push that word away, the more I want people to take it on. And I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's just like I want to be able to call myself a healer, and if nobody else is calling themselves a healer, then I guess I'm a bad person. Like <laughs> part of it's no. that, no, but you know that's the judgment, right? But then also there's like, especially my therapist, she's probably the best example because she has facilitated my healing in an extraordinary way, and the fact that she won't own that is disappointing to me. You know, and and other people in my life, whether they have healed me or whether I've watched them heal other people, I want us to be able to use that word more demonstratively. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe what also occurred for me as I was thinking about that is to say a healer, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, I feel like that is something where it brought to mind people who very much feel like healers in my life. I mean, especially my own therapist right now exudes that aura of a higher level of consciousness and Mm -hmm. lives into it so completely Mm -hmm. that, you know, I've described her as a healer before and, you know, she just, you know, smiles, but not in like a modest way, but like she really is somebody who every aspect of her being is, is that of a healer. And so for me, I feel like there is, there's a really wonderful path forward to, live into that. And, Mm -hmm. and perhaps it motivates me to, to not say a healer, but to Mm -hmm. really commit to healing work and to view that as a daily practice until the practice becomes a manifestation. But it has manifested. I guess that's the thing that what you've created. And, and I say this also, again, like it's a mirror, right? You know, when I, when I get compliments about what's happened with head heart therapy, you know, there's a part of me that pushes away, but I'm looking at you and what you've built. It has manifested. You do have the capacity to create healing. You have hired clinicians who also do that on a regular basis. So, and obviously this isn't just pointed right at you, but you just happen (laughs) to be on the other side of the mic right now. But why, why can't we just say, yeah, I'm a fucking healer. Okay. And I'm practicing this as much as I possibly can every day. And some days I do it better than others, but I'm a healer. Well, and I like that. I think that would be worthy of for my own meditation to sit in that space and mm-hmm. to notice what comes up as the discomfort shows up. So yeah, no, that's, that's going to be something that I think about a lot, actually. Oh. I'm glad that you are challenging me on this and not letting me get away with it. See, this oh, is girl. the thing about you is like, if you mm-hmm. see like a little thing with me, you just zzz, drill into it until I like have to acknowledge it, which I really appreciate. Well, it's funny. That's, I've realized that about myself and that I cannot be in relationship with someone who is not equally as determined as I am to be the best version of themselves because of this thing, right? Because I see the thread, I pull it. And if I pull it and all of a sudden you're naked and you're pissed, we can't go on. But if I pull it, you're naked and you're like, ha ha, give me a shirt, asshole. Then then we can still stay in relationship, right? Yes. Yes. I... And you know me, I mean, I may be rigid, but I'm open to somebody challenging me to not be rigid. So maybe that's why this works. (laughs) Well, and 
to speak to the rigidity, I'm rigid too. I'm just rigid in different ways. And so when I see that piece of you, I see that piece of me and I see, I try to infuse with other people because you're not the only one who also has rigid qualities in my life. Like when I see that with other people, I guess I try to give the gift that I am given whenever I'm in a rigid space and somebody's like, here you go. Just either just settle or I'm going to just fucking kick you off the ledge because you just got to be kicked out of the nest, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and it works. You're very effective. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I always say this whenever Whenever, whenever I do public speaking, it's funny how much I try to emulate you in so many different ways. As far Me? as yeah, girl, Wait, yes, come no, on. no. Stop. As as far as your business sense and the way, mm. the logical way in which you approach management, that I don't have the intuit skill for. So you certainly give me a lot of gifts as well. Oh, this is like total love fest. Oh my God, I know. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's what's cool about these conversations too. And when I started this podcast, I set out to have conversations with people that I love and talk about real shit. And that's exactly what we're doing. Well, now I'm just thinking about how you know, so, so you showed up in my life at a time that was so challenging for me on a a personal and professional level, Mm -hmm. which was only, you know, like January, 2017, um, being introduced by, um, someone in our network. And I was going through this crisis of not trusting myself because of something Mm -hmm. very, very tough that had happened in my clinical practice. And I remember sitting with you at the the Kava shop, my my favorite non-alcoholic beverage. And I remember you just, you know, sitting there just sort of open arm being like, you know, wherever I go and whatever I do, I just sort of think of something and it manifests. (laughs) And (laughs) I manifest like a motherfucker. That's what I say. Exactly. You know, and I was in this really, really challenging, you know, challenged place. And I remember sort of the energy and and passion, excitement and openness um, in you. And I was like, wow, like, I, I remember thinking, like, you really came into my life at the most important time, because everything in me was trying to close off and close down. Mm. And you immediately were somebody who was pushing for an opening. And you were um, inspired in all that you were doing with that. And it's just been amazing how am I thinking about January, 2017, it has not been a long time, but right. I feel like we've really just developed such an amazing, you know, relationship in such a short period of time that the linear time almost means nothing because it feels so mm-hmm. rich, you know? Mm-hmm. Again, this episode is not sponsored by Marco Polo, but I wish it was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marco Polo is great. That's wow. We really do sound like they're paying us tons of money. I know. We should, I, re- I really should call them and be like, guys, just listen to this because we can. <laughs> it's funny. I think I've told you this before, but my husband and I met on match.com. And when they started having all those match commercials, people are like, oh, why don't you? Why aren't you in the commercials? And I'm like, we fucking applied for it. Nobody picked us up, but we are a fucking amazing pair. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> so that's how I feel for you and me and Marco Polo. They don't know how amazing we could sell their product, but whatever. 
<laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna have to link, do a little affiliate link or something in the, under this Clearly. podcast so people can find it. Clearly, absolutely. So we've digressed into the love fest, but I I still <laughs> I think it's amazing. But you mentioned the struggle that you had in in 2017, your clinical practice, yes. and I think that moves us into the conversation about the wounded healer and. Yes. You know, we've already talked about healers being a term that you're not necessarily, you haven't embraced fully yet, but how does wounded healer land? So, well, it still has that word healer in it. So mm-hmm. that's a- problem number one. <laughs> okay. Check. And, and I, of course, have listened to almost all of your podcasts. And so for you and me being in the field of addictions, like you and Audra, right, there's this sort of common I think, approach or vocabulary that we have. Something I love about the field of addiction is that we are really bringing our full authentic selves Mm -hmm. into the relationship with our clients, that that's actually part of our history in this field. We're not distant, removed psychoanalysts. We're really showing up with our full set of experiences. Whether or not we actually disclose those in the room, I do not think that I could do the work that I do unless I had experienced, you know, significant pain and certainly a lot of sort of developmental relational trauma growing up just with my household. And then the effects of that on my early adulthood and Mm -hmm. ways that, you know, I had to acknowledge and then move through to overcome. And um, it's, it can be a miserable and brutal process. Mm -hmm. And it's one that every day there's more to discover about like, oh, wow, there's more of my stuff that's showing up. And now I'm going to work with it. Mm -hmm. So I do identify with, you know, somebody who I think the expression that we use in like critical race theory is, you know, you're not a damaged product, you're a product of damage. And ooh, I've never heard that before. I love that. Yeah, it's a old, old kind of critical race theory idea that, you know, we we are in this sort of system that exposes us to trauma, and yet we are not damaged forever, that we can really choose to heal very intentionally. And, and so that's the other element of this is, you know, we start out saying, okay, you know, what does a healer do? They facilitate healing every day with others. But then also there's always that daily commitment for me to to working on myself and to healing myself. And that is a daily, hourly, minute by minute yeah. practice. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. And this this thought just came to me. I don't think I asked Audra this question. And if you don't want to go there, we can just delete this part. But both of us are not in recovery from substance use disorders, but we work with substance use disorders. So I'm curious if you had any imposter syndrome around that at any point in your career. So I actually, I I might have maybe when I was in school and sort of trying to learn that, but also like, I didn't understand anything when I was in school since I was learning like psychology 101. I know. I I think back to that and I'm like, I knew nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But actually, because my practice starts from, you know, we do a lot of like starting with problem drinking and harm Mm -hmm. reduction and moderation approaches and harm reduction approaches to so many addictive behaviors and processes where Mm -hmm. people have a goal, not of complete abstinence, but of changing to be in line with their values. Yeah, I do feel very much lined up with that. So anybody who meets me in person would see I've got an AA tattoo actually on my wrist on my Mm -hmm. right arm. 
And I got that after going through a really bad episode of depression in 2010 that was brought on by undiagnosed narcolepsy. And I used my problem solving approach to try and treat what I thought was depression. So every time I was tired, I was like, oh, I should go for a run. I should hang out with my friends. And so I basically exhausted myself and was Mm -hmm. in this sort of like half awake, half asleep state. And I was very, very depressed. And at that time, you know, imagine you're half awake, half asleep all the time. I had half a glass of white wine and then just went into this almost dreamlike state of despair. Mm -hmm. And I shared this Mm -hmm. with my coworker while I was working in this agency And she was like, oh my gosh, well, that's a sign that you're an alcoholic. You should come to AA with me. And Mm -hmm. I was like, well, you know what? Everything I'm doing right now isn't working. So why not? And at that time too, I was seeking out like lots of different kinds of help. Like I was like, all right, well, I should probably get a psychiatrist. I already had a therapist I saw twice a week. I built in all these different supports and I did AA for six months. Mm -hmm. And when I say I did AA, like I didn't do like a 90 on 90, like 90 meetings in 90 days, but I did all the steps. I had a sponsor who was lovely and wonderful. And I went to lots of different meetings. I had a home group. I did everything. I had Mm -hmm. all the books and there were things that I found to be tremendously beneficial for me, specifically related to really checking my ego, which Mm -hmm, was mm -hmm. substantial, which is substantial when I let it run the show. Right. Oh, girl. Yes, I get that too. (laughs) Yeah. And at the same time, as I started to lift from the depression, there were things that I didn't really like about it so much. I didn't like that. uh, There were some meetings where I didn't want to go because there'd be men hitting on me all the time. I didn't like being told that I was powerless um, because I'd always Mm -hmm. think to myself, okay, well, like powerless, like this idea being drilled in my head because part of my depression was feeling really helpless and really powerless. Right. And so there were a lot of things where it just, it it wasn't quite matching up for me. And then also I was trying to look at like, well, what was really creating problems for me with drinking? It, It was that, you know, drinking while being depressed and not sleeping enough is really fucking stupid. Right. It's really stupid, right? Or drinking to, you know, feel better. Mm-hmm. That's really stupid. And those were things that I had been doing. And I really created an intentional framework around how I wanted to exist because I didn't mm-hmm. have one after college and going into my 20s. I mean, it's either like you just do what what you've always done or you just don't drink. And so right, right. that's when I was like, okay, I can actually look at this from a perspective of like, what do I want in my life? And at that time, I then was feeling so much better. I stopped going to AA. I began moderate drinking and I I felt really great, but my ego still a problem. (laughs) And so I went to get a tattoo and I got this huge black tattoo on my wrist of at the AA symbol, not because I was still in AA, but I wanted to remember every single time I washed my face in the morning that I am capable of making the wrong choice every single day, that my hands, my body, my spirit, that I can move towards unhealth or I can choose to acknowledge my shit and to take responsibility for my life. And so I got that. Um, and then some years down the line, I actually, what's what's inside of my tattoo now is my family seal for the Japanese side of my family. I actually put that into my AA tattoo because I realized that that was the missing piece too, was mm-hmm. I hadn't really worked through 
you know, the intergenerational trauma from that side of my family. And I was like, that is also a part of my acknowledgement and my healing is that my ego doesn't just come from thinking I'm amazing. It comes from this need to survive that I was given by the people who came before me. And so Mm -hmm. I guess I don't, I don't feel like an imposter. I actually feel very strong about my story because that's how I work with all of my clients that I think there's so much more behind a behavior than just, is it good or bad? Should you stop or should you start? Right. I'm so glad that in the DSM, they changed substance use disorders to be on a spectrum rather than you are or you aren't. You know, you're either dependent or you're abusive or you're none of those things where in our WAP meeting, the Women's Association of Addiction Treatment on Tuesday, we we talked about kind of controversial subjects in addiction. And this is one thing that came up that how many of us at one point in our lives could have been diagnosed with alcohol dependence or substance dependence of another sort. And if we were sent to treatment at that time, we would have been told, guess what? You're an alcoholic or you're an addict and you're never going to be able to drink for the rest of your life. And we see a lot of those people in treatment and that's what they that's what they are being told right now. And I think that it's a disservice if we're not looking at drinking as a symptom instead of the problem itself, right? And that's kind of what I hear you describing is that you had these reactions to alcohol. Alcohol wasn't the problem. You were the problem. <laughs> like, you know, your your undiagnosed narcolepsy, the ego stuff. And when you're able to work on that for you, not for everybody, because some people, yes, they are alcoholics and addicts and need to abstain forever. But that's not for us to decide. Yes. And I guess what I would add to that, too, that's true for me and it's true for a lot of the clients I work with is, you know, what I eventually really got honest about was you know, when I was in that place of depression, one of the reasons why, you know, because it's like, okay, well, alcohol is a depressant. Why would you drink? It just makes Mm -hmm. you more depressed. Mm -hmm. Chemically, that's true. But in that place of depression and in that place of my ego and my survival instincts, I really believed that no one could connect with me, that no one Mm. could reach me. And I didn't believe that I could trust anyone because Hmm. I felt so disconnected. Not just, Mm -hmm. I mean, I was everything felt disconnected because I was really sleep deprived. But also I just really was, I had this idea that I had to rely on myself to, to solve everything. And so then, you know, for me, even just a small amount of alcohol became a relationship where, Mm -hmm. you know, I could, I felt like I was taking care of myself and I didn't have to rely on anyone. And it really was almost like a slow soul death. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. I mean, very maladaptive, very harmful. So yeah, the alcohol is a relationship and a symptom and so many other things. There's so much more than, you know, what people think alcohol is all about. Mm -hmm. And as we're saying all this too, I'm also thinking, I'm always thinking about who's listening, what are they hearing from this? And I've become very conscious of what I say in group and then what people take away as a result of that. And so I guess I just want to put the disclaimer on here that we are not diagnosing nor are we undiagnosing anyone. And that if anyone is listening to this and questioning their relationship with alcohol, I recommend that you talk to a therapist about it and get some outside opinions as well as checking with your own intuition. That decision has to be made in partnership in community rather than in isolation. 
Absolutely. I have a lot of clients who come to me and they've taken all these little screenings and tests that they find online. And Mm -hmm. in in the same way, I do not like the Enneagram test, Sarah. Uh, (gasps) I believe that people should, you know, uh, collaborate to find their space. I also, uh, most of the self-report screenings for substance use, it's not actually revealing like a truth, right? Right. And yeah, and there are a lot of people out there who can help someone discern what's mm-hmm. working or what's not working in the relationship with alcohol or other substances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or other behaviors, right? Just yes. Like you said. 100%. Yeah. You know, you talking about the tattoo on your arm so that you see it every time that you wash your face and you really think about, I have choices today. I have a choice to move towards health or move away from it. What are the practices or the things that you engage in that keep you motivated to move towards health? Yeah. So I always think about, uh, cause I have this tendency to frenetically over engage my energy. And oh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I never do that. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> this it's, is what we're exactly the same. Yeah. 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 So you know, I'm kind of like, all right, everybody knows about like the self-care things you should do or whatever, right. like, Oh, take a bath. I mean, so obviously I've got my own therapist it's so, so helpful when things are at their very, very worst. When I feel like self-care isn't even possible, what I actually do is I will just put a timer on my phone for a few minutes and just sort of breathe in a place of stillness mm-hmm. and just let whatever is coming up, just show up non-judgmentally mm-hmm. just to kind of like settle my system a little bit. And then I do a lot of work of just trying to sort of like, you know, physically clear my body by yeah. I'll go and I'll walk, I will turn off my devices, I will journal. There are a lot of things that I have to do to sort of get my energy and thoughts and feelings sort of out um, so that I'm not just cycling through them in my brain trying to Mm -hmm. solve them. So, and you'll notice too, when I'm thinking of these things, these basic, basic practices, if I'm in a place of like significant compromise, I still do find that it's hard to, I have a tendency to isolate more than to reach out. But if I can clear my body and my mind, then that sort of gets me to a place of recognizing like, okay, I need to pick up the phone. I need to go, Mm -hmm. you know, meet up with, you know, my various communities. But first I have to really just clear out Mm -hmm. everything that's sort of swirling around in my head, you know? And, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of reflecting on how I process too. And I've noticed Because of, for me, what feels like a high level of stress professionally that really stirs up my perfectionism, I find that perfectionism is the one thing that can shut me down. Like, normally I am a fixer or I'm a pusher-thrower. And like when you were just talking about when you can't do the self-care, and I had that happen to me, I don't remember what day it was this week, but stuff with work. And then I like just shut down for an evening and, and I guess... What I've realized about that is I've been able to give myself permission to to stop and like be shut down for an evening and know, like trust in myself that because I have a regular spiritual practice and I do take care of myself and I do have people who really, really love me and are there to support me, that it's okay to shut down for a night and then I'm able to come back in a better way the next day. You know, I'm just reflecting and patting myself yeah. on the back for that. Absolutely. I I find and I have found that the very worst thing I can do when I'm in a state of stress is anything involving a screen. 
Yeah. Like doing yeah. work on a screen, it just, it just escalates me more and more and I get more and yeah. more locked in. And so I just, that's why I'm like, you know, I've, I turn off the screens, I put them away. I literally walk around the block. I will sit in a place of stillness and, and then I make it sound so easy, but it's really <laughs> right. fucking hard because I don't want to do that because the voice right. in my head's like, we've got to do this thing. It's the right. right thing. Blah. Mm-hmm. And every cell in my body is like fighting me, fighting me, fighting me. And then once mm-hmm. I like get just a little bit into a clearance, then I just feel everything just suddenly release. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I am exhausted. And then I can really feel it. But I have to move away from screens because they make me crazy when I'm in that place. With you saying this, it's really kind of highlighting that even more for me. A friend of mine had an app on her phone that was tracking her screen time. And so I was like, ooh, that's a good idea because I feel like I've been spending too much time on my phone. And I put it on there and it made me feel so much worse because it kept it like it kept going in the red. And I was realizing how a how much that in and of itself was upsetting me. And then when I would see that, I would just go in and like numb myself on Instagram or Facebook, just like scrolling through things. And the screen itself, something about it, like when you said letting go of screens, there's something in there that there's there's a little addictive pull right now that I feel like I'm locked into this battle with my phone that I haven't unwoven yet. And I'm just, you're, you're pulling on my threads now because I'm like, oh, I gotta, I really got to take a deeper look at that. Well, so as you know, um, like EMDR, I move into sensitization mm-hmm. and reprocessing. And it's such a ridiculous name, but it's very popular now. And when people ask me like, oh my gosh, well, how does it work? Because, you know, you're doing things to sort of make somebody's eyes move back and forth. There are many theories as to why that's helpful in the brain and blah, blah, blah. I mean, we really don't know. But honestly, I've come to anecdotally believe that we're in this world right now where our eyes are locking onto one space on a screen all the time yeah. and or we're texting on the screen all the time. And after something traumatic happens or something stressful happens, we're actually designed to scan the horizon and walk yeah. around and search to see if things are safe. So mm-hmm. when we're walking and we don't have a screen in front of us, our eyes naturally move back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Mm-hmm. And that creates a feeling of clearance and safety in the brain, much like our eyes move back and forth when we sleep. It's sort of the brain is getting rid of garbage it doesn't need. Yeah. And I have to wonder if one of the reasons why, at least especially for my clients, it's been so beneficial to do EMDRs because we don't have that built into our society. We have the very mm. opposite thing. So I've got uh, several friends who are neurologists and <laughs> some years ago they found that when they were looking at um, video EEGs of people's brains, that there was a new pattern that showed up in the brain that had never been seen before Hmm. only when people are text messaging (gasps) oh no and so when my clients (laughs) are i'm waiting for the the bad news well i mean i mean again we're just sort of scraping the surface of what we know about the brain but i know again anecdotally from my work that one of the worst outcomes is when my clients get into text message battles with yes. people oh God. on their phones and they get yeah. really locked in and they get more and more locked in and more and more locked in. So yeah, that's why it's like when everything's really hard and I don't even want to take care of myself, I just have to turn off the screens, go for mm-hmm. a walk. And if I don't even have the energy to do that, I just turn off the screens and I just close my eyes and sit in silence for five minutes and mm-hmm. make myself feel what I'm feeling. Yeah. 
Mm, so you heard it here, kids. Turn off your phones. <laughs> I mean, not while not- you're listening to the podcast because you have to finish listening first, but then turn off your phones. <laughs> there, there's look, I mean, I'm I'm not anti screens, I'm right, not anti right. technology, but we do need that balance of clearance. Yeah. Our brain needs it, the most basic part of our brain. Yeah, and that makes so much sense. Oh, well, my dear friend, we're almost closing in on an hour. So I want to ask, are there other things that you might want to talk about and share with listeners today that we haven't already discussed? Something that comes to mind is that, you know, almost all of us have coping that is addictive in some way, Mm -hmm. whether or not it's like a quote, capital addiction. Yeah. And something that has been really interesting for me, having presented it in front of a lot of groups and classes is when I'm going through sort of the cycle of addictive behaviors and how that relates to perfectionism, almost everybody can identify with that cycle by the age of 18. Yeah. I have yet to show that to a classroom and have people say, oh, I don't do that. Right, right. Um, (laughs) And and and, if you do, then let's kick them out of the program immediately. And I guess there's some people who go all their lives where things are good and they're just sort of holding it together in this perfect way. But Mm -hmm. then they do things that where they are being, you know, addictive and they feel bad and there's shame and they live all their lives like that. And, you know, whether or not that's seeing a counselor or a therapist, I believe that, you know, we're in a world where all of us have to reach out to community to find healing and to heal each other and to really connect. And I guess that's like kind of my, that's sort of like my mission, right? Is I would love to be in a world where we connect authentically Mm -hmm. and that we could all look at you know, some of our behaviors that we want to change and know that there actually is a way out. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like I've been coming up against this with a lot of my clients and, and friends and people around all of my clients and friends, that there is a big struggle with a lot of denial right now. And I, I really just believe like denial is this mechanism to try to protect us from shame. Like the more stories I hear about people not owning their shit, it's because they cannot tolerate shame. Yeah. I actually, I've come to believe that when we think of dissociation, Mm -hmm. um, so somebody Mm -hmm. who has a flashback or they suddenly are out of their body or they just blank out you know, what's happening. I've actually come to believe that denial is really a process of dissociation and it's a trauma response. And so instead of being like, wow, you're in denial, you're really stupid because we, Mm. we approach denial as though it's cognitive, right? As though somebody is being illogical. Right. And I I 100% believe that it's a dissociative process and that the point when somebody is in denial is to bring them in instead of telling them they're wrong and they're stupid and moving them more into a trauma space to embrace them and to see that this is somebody who's in pain. Right. And and this just reminds me, I read, well, it was read to me, but I downloaded and and listened to the book. I think it was called The Spider and the Fly. And it's a story of this reporter who starts researching this, the, I think he was the first, maybe only black serial killer who killed white women, because for some reason, serial killers like to stay within their race. I listen to a lot of murder things. I think we've talked about this in the podcast before, (laughs) but I found this super fascinating that, so she followed this, the story of this guy and he killed women for years and left them in his parents' attic. And the reason that the parents didn't know was because they were hoarders. And 
So she talks a ton in the book about the mechanism of denial because the mother actually worked in a mental hospital. And so she should have been trained, right? We think someone should be able to like see these maladaptive behaviors or things that are happening with her son to know that he might be a serial killer, right? And everyone's like, well, how could she not know? And and there's this discussion about denial. I think you're fucking right on. Denial is dissociative. And the, the ways that when I've seen people right in front of me be in denial it is a trauma response, and shame is processed in the brain as trauma. It does the same fight, flight, or freeze that another trauma does. So it's all, yes, we're solving all the world's problems right now. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's like so many, and this is, you know, I love about your program, and certainly I hope we're living into with my program is like recognizing that keeping on shame and trying to mm-hmm. quote break through denial with like, you know, presenting facts that like we can just move beyond that and see people who are in denial need love and connection because they need somebody to show them that they're worthy of love, even if they don't believe it. Right, right. And that's, you know, I've learned in, in the past four years, all of the groups that I've been doing, I just pop in and out of treatment centers. So I don't have relationships with people. And when I have a relationship with someone, I work with denial in a very different way. But when it's somebody... I don't know and I don't know their history and I can't pull any of that information. I just say, look, all I can do is tell you what I know about shame and I can tell you, I offer you curiosity because I've found in this work, especially in addiction, that there are things that the ways that our body and our mind trick ourselves into thinking this isn't my problem, where if we are open and curious about it and can maybe use somebody's help to kind of dig into it, then we have somewhere to go rather than just denying that anything could be our problem. And it it seems to work out pretty well. I used to fight more with people about it and being like, well, I know all that shame and you don't. So you have to just listen to me. <laughs> and now it seems to work a lot better when I'm like, just be curious and you don't have to, you don't have to take it, but just think about it. That's all I ask, you know? Yes, absolutely. With a with an open heart. So Yeah. Well, Sarah, I think this has been amazing. I thank you so much. Well, thank you for letting me be here. This is really a wonderful conversation. Yay. Awesome. Well, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations with the Wounded Healer. I am so appreciative of Sarah Suzuki for joining us today. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and Edwin Ruiz at the Creative Imposter Studios for the editing, Liam O'Donnell for the album art photo, and Ben Mueller for our theme music. For more information on Sarah and Chicago Compass Counseling, you can visit my website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And you can find Conversations with a Wounded Healer on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Spotify and iTunes and all those other fun places. So check my website for more details. Thanks so much for tuning in. Bye-bye.